the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. Whether we shape the future in the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. Americanism, not globalism, will be our credo. Putting America first. This is The Right Take. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Right Take. Jacob, can you believe it has already been less than a week? We ventured out to the People's Republic of California, my former home state, so that I could give a speech to the annual convention of the California Republican Assembly titled why they fear January 6th. And even beyond the speech, we got to meet numerous candidates for Congress. We met a candidate for Senate. I got to see some old friends from my days in the college Republicans. You guys know who you are, but it was truly a great time. We have already posted the speech on Rumble, the video version kindly recorded and streamed courtesy of the California Republican Assembly. Please check that out. The Ohio Senate primary. So we've talked about this a little bit before, um, a little bit of background here. Uh, Some people have described the Republican primary for the open Senate seat in Ohio being vacated by Republican uh, Rhino Senator Rob Portman as perhaps the most competitive Senate primary in the whole country right now. Ohio, of course, is a crucial swing state that has been trending pretty firmly Republican. Trump won it by eight points, I believe, in both 2016 and 2020. Uh, Governor DeWine was reelected in 2018, even a year that was a, a bad year for Republicans. The They have one U.S. senator, one Republican senator and one quote-unquote moderate Democratic Senator, Sherrod Brown. 
it like Florida and Iowa seems to be trending pretty solidly into the Republican column now, which if that does happen along with Iowa and Florida, that would be a huge deal. That would very much offset Democratic gains, courtesy of immigration along the South, you know, in New Mexico and Arizona and what have you. And there are multiple candidates running for this seat, this open, this vacated seat. The Democratic nominee is pretty much guaranteed to be Tim Ryan, the uh, congressman who was one of the 520-something candidates for president in 2020 in their primaries briefly. He touted himself as kind of a Bernie Sanders-style working-class moderate. Then he went full leftist, full woke to while he was running for president, and now he's the guaranteed nominee. We mentioned, of course, before that one of the candidates, I think Jacob and I can agree he is our candidate of choice, is the author of Hillbilly Elegy, J.D. Vance. He is running for this Senate seat, but he has some stiff competition, and that's been unfortunately been a problem for him. His primary rivals are former state treasurer Josh Mandel, former chair of the Ohio GOP Jane Timken, and state, Sen- state senator Matt Dolan, and businessman Mike Gibbons. So what was happening here for the longest time is that Mandel was the overwhelming frontrunner from the very beginning. This guy, again, he has held statewide office in Ohio before. He previously ran for the Senate in both 2012 and 2018. In 2012, when Sherrod Brown was up for re-election, Mandel was the nominee and lost by six points. In 2018, he ran again for what would have been a rematch with Brown, but then, and polls had him as the favorite to win that nomination again, and polls even suggested he could have beaten Brown that year because, you know, 2018 was not a great year for Republicans overall, but again, Ohio stayed red, as did Florida. But then when he seemed all but guaranteed to win the nomination and maybe even the general election, he suddenly dropped out before the primary, citing uh, family issues of some kind, which uh, to me, that's kind of a cop-out excuse. It's used a little too often these days. So then he dropped out. The nomination went to a congressman named Jim Renacy, who then went on to lose by a slightly larger margin to Brown of seven points. So Mandel's running again. He's a two-time loser for this for this position, basically. But he's running again, and he had been the nominee, or he had been the frontrunner in the polls. Recently, another candidate that had been running named Bernie Moreno, a businessman who never really polled well. He wasn't going to be the nominee, but he was polling decently, maybe the high single digits. He dropped out, and apparently pretty much all of his voters coalesced behind Gibbons, another businessman who's never run for office before. So in all the latest polling in the aggregates, Gibbons is now the narrow favorite over Mandel to be the nominee. So with uh, J.D. Vance further behind in kind of a third place, and then Timken in fourth, and Dolan kind of waddling around in fifth place so those are the dynamics going into the first primary debate between the five major candidates which was hosted by freedom works and that was where this happened this glorious exchange between gibbons and mandel it is pretty funny to watch the video but again because this is an audio podcast i'll do my best to describe it so they're all sitting on chairs on the stage kind of like a town hall thing and the moderator's up there with him. Gibbons is up there with the mic. He's talking, so he's the one kind of walking around pacing the stage. And he's talking about his, you know, his experience as a businessman, an outsider. And I guess in the attack ads prior to this, Mandel, of course, desperate to regain top spot, was going after Gibbons, claiming that he made all of his money in China. And then this happened. I can tell you, you filed that I, with the Federal Elections Commission. You well, own stock I, in Chinese Petro. I personally didn't buy the stock. You uh, made millions off it, sir. I don't think I made millions off of anything. I'd love to have made millions off of Chinese Petro. Uh, first of all, Shanghai Shenda and buying, Chinese Petro. Buying a second, right, you may not understand this because you've I never been in the private. No, you don't. I do. You've never been in the I private sector it. in your entire right, life. I've worked, sir. Josh, squat. Two tours in Iraq. Don't, don't tell me I haven't worked. Don't, don't tell me I haven't worked. You, you don't know squat. It's okay, right? You don't know squat. 
tours in Iraq. Don't tell me I haven't worked. Back off, buddy. You're going to die. You back off. Never. That'll happen. Sit down. Never. Watch. The moderator is literally standing between them at this point, using his arms to separate them. The audience is overwhelmingly booing Mandel, of course. All right, guys. So, and at the very end there, so, first off, again, seeing the video, Gibbons is an older guy. He's shorter he's definitely overweight he has white hair mandel is taller slender he's got to be half givens his age a marine veteran by the way as he proudly declared i served two tours in iraq two tours in iraq and so what mandel does he gets up out of his chair and gets right up in gibbons's face over gibbons saying you haven't worked a day in your life son and he, wearing his you know service on his sleeve kind of like a you know a certain one-eyed bandit from texas he says you <laughs> i've served two tours in iraq don't tell me i haven't worked a day in my life you don't know squat and again the moderator has to separate them and at the very end there you can faintly hear it jd vance stands up and he stays near his seat but he stands up and he's like come on knock it off guys this is ridiculous <laughs> so it was truly and again to hear the audience overwhelmingly booing mandel like i i don't know what this guy was thinking i don't know what could possibly be going through his head that this is a great thing optically to do does he know the difference between a tour in iraq and the private sector uh i I think he likes to think that he does but either way that was definitely i don't know what that was supposed to be again mr you know i served in iraq so i'm a tough guy meaning i'm gonna get up in an old man's face and basically almost start a fight with him i I don't know but the results then speak for themselves because then of course freedom works had a straw poll in the immediate aftermath of the debate and this is my favorite thing of course out of nowhere i i didn't see the rest of the debate but apparently besides that little moment of telling them both to being the adult in the room and telling them both to calm down vance apparently did very well for himself vance won the straw poll with 43 percent the next highest was less than half of that jane timkin who got 20.7 percent uh in third place gibbons had only 16.1 percent matt dolan 12.3 percent and in fifth place with just 4.6% is Mr. Tough Guy Josh Mandel. So if his campaign was already kind of struggling with Gibbons' rise, then he definitely did not do himself any favors here. And it's funny, again, obviously Gibbons didn't do anything wrong. He didn't provoke him. He just, you know, criticized him like, you know, you do in debates. And Mandel got up in his face and had this whole exchange with him, but that apparently hurt Gibbons' image, too, with the audience. I did think it was funny, too, again, to see off to the side of the screen as they're arguing, as they're going at it, as the moderator is trying to separate them. You can see Vance and Timkin both kind of turn to each other and just share a look, like, wow, is this really (laughs) happening? Like, they both are definitely the big winners of this coming away from this to be completely free of all that. But I I can't help but think... Jacob, how many times have we heard like politicians tell each other like, "Oh, you haven't worked a day in your life. You're a career politician." Like, how many times have we heard that at debates and otherwise? It's, I mean, it's a common refrain. But the the problem though is when someone who served in the military then thinks that their military service compensates for that. It doesn't. Exactly. It's not the same thing. If you're people who are serving in the military, they are on the same payroll that bureaucrats are. Like they don't, they didn't start a business. They're not working for an employer mm-hmm. the same way someone in the private sector is. They're not entrepreneurial by any means. You know, joining the military, you know, it's a noble thing, of course, but it's not. You're not starting a business. You're not giving other people jobs. So it's, it's. I just <laughs> that is one of the most entertaining things I have ever seen. Though never before have I seen two candidates come that close to fighting uh, on a stage in front of everybody. They know they're on camera. They know everyone's watching. And I mean, again, Gibbons isn't really doing anything wrong here. He's just you know telling it like it is. But Mandel. Oh, I don't know what the guy is thinking, man. I, 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 at this point, I really do hope 
he sinks further in the polls. And again, hopefully, if the straw poll is any indication, this will the, the two of them destroying each other will create a nice little opening right down the middle for J.D. Vance to soar through to the nomination. That would be the ideal situation. From what I've heard, Gibbons isn't bad and would probably be a decent senator. From what I've heard, even Mandel wouldn't be a bad senator. The mainstream media, while he was frontrunner, is overwhelmingly saying, oh, he's far right, he's alt-right, blah, 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 blah. And of course, anyone the media calls far right these days is probably an okay person in my book. In other 2022 news, we had to talk about this. When I saw this, my jaw almost hit the floor. I could not believe this breaking news. So, Jacob, you, of course, are from Alabama. Correct. And we have talked off the air quite a bit about the politics in your state. And that information will definitely be put to good use here to talk about the Senate primary. So that is, of course, another Republican seat. Obviously, no one is expecting it to flip blue anytime soon. Uh, Richard Shelby is retiring after uh, 80 years in the Senate. How long has he been in the Senate, Jacob? He's been around for a while, right? Oh, he's uh, at least 40 years, I think. I'm pretty sure he's uh, he entered in the eight, early 80s or the 70s even. Yeah, reading the Wikipedia page, there we go. He was first elected in 1986 and then reelected in 1992 as a Democrat. Interesting. Before switching Republican with the big Republican wave in 1994. So he's finally retiring. He is in his 80s, I believe. And initially, this seemed to be a one and done deal. The primary, the initial front runner was Congressman Mo Brooks from the 5th District of Alabama. Now, he was first elected in 2010, and from what I understand, he has been very solid on immigration from the very beginning. He was a border hawk before Trump ever came along. He previously did run for the Senate in the infamous special election in 2017, where, of course, he came in third. He failed to make the runoff when uh, Roy Moore and Luther Strange pulled ahead of him. And I do remember uh, Sean Hannity, of all people, the night of the general election when Roy Moore ended up losing to Doug Jones. It was Sean Hannity who said, I I thought fairly eloquently, he said, you know, President Trump and the the America First movement love to talk a lot about the forgotten man, you know, the forgotten men and women of America. I think this Alabama election is indicative of the forgotten candidate that should have been this nominee that should have been here tonight, and that is Mo Brooks, because I think Hannity endorsed Mo Brooks during the original primary, and a lot of other people did. They saw that he was more in line with President Trump's agenda and the MAGA agenda than Luther Strange was, and certainly even more so than Roy Moore was. Roy Moore was never really a populist, but unfortunately, Brooks did not win that nomination, and that seat was lost. He ultimately did not run for uh, the first full election to that same seat held by Doug Jones in 2020 when he it was announced he announced that he had been diagnosed with cancer. He ultimately made a recovery, thank God. Uh, so kind of you know a, a miraculous comeback story. But of course, he chose to stay out of that primary, and of course, Tommy Tuberville beat Jeff Sessions and went on to beat Doug Jones to become the next senator. So this one, 2022, Shelby retiring. It was appeared to be, you know, third time's the charm. Brooks is finally going to have his moment in the spotlight. He's finally going to become a senator from Alabama and bring the based immigration agenda to the United States Senate. Unfortunately, he, after a few initial polls, had him as the favorite. He hit a bit of a problem. Joining the race was is a woman named uh, Katie Britt, who is a former chief of staff to... Senator Shelby, who, of course, was subsequently endorsed by Shelby and as a woman, of course, has been endorsed by plenty of other people saying, oh, well, we need a woman in the Senate. And she very quickly caught up to Brooks in the polls. It was kind of a very neck and neck thing for a while. And then she slowly pulled ahead. And over the last few weeks, I did not even realize this until the news broke. Over the last few weeks, Brooks had even fallen in most polling into third in the primary behind Katie Britt and former U.S. Army pilot Michael Durant. It was looking more likely at this point like a showdown between Durant and Britt for the runoff. And at that point, it's anyone's guess who would win the runoff. So one one big advantage Brooks had is that right out the gate after announcing his candidacy for this seat, President Trump issued his endorsement. You know, his full and total endorsement. But 
I saw this and I couldn't believe it because I don't think this has ever happened before. President Trump announced that he was rescinding his endorsement for Mo Brooks. He issued a statement, one of his you know charismatic uh, you know characteristic statements, saying arguing that Brooks went quote woke. He went woke by arguing it was legally impossible for President Trump to be reinstated due to potential voter fraud in 2020. He criticized Brooks for hiring, quote, a new campaign staff who brilliantly, brilliantly in quotation marks, convinced him to stop talking about the 2020 election. I am hereby withdrawing my endorsement of Mo Brooks for the Senate. I don't think the great people of Alabama will disagree with me. Election fraud must be captured and stopped or we won't have a country anymore. I will be making a new endorsement in the near future. So, Jacob, please, uh, as someone from Alabama, chime in and tell us, you know, what do you think about this and how do you think it led to this that Brooks had such a catastrophic collapse in uh, the primary? Well, last time I visited, I saw multiple billboards for Katie Britt. So I'm, I would give her the the advantage in this one. But the problem with Brooks is he is, is a, a congressman from the north part of Alabama. So he's very, very popular in his district. He's a Tea Party congressman. He's not really well known or popular throughout the rest of the state. So given uh, the money that Richard Shelby has to offer, he's, he's uh, promised to drop $6 million on this rest on this race behind Katie Britt. So I would give her the best chance to get the nomination. It remind me again, you said that uh, – well, it's, it's just it, a name recognition. I mean if, exactly. if you put billboards all over the state, then you're going to have – it's like the um, – I can't remember the, the lawyer. There's a lawyer in Birmingham, um, but he's got his billboard plastered all mm-hmm. over the state. He's the most popular lawyer in Alabama. In fact, he, people when people think of Alabama, if they're ever driven through it, they think of him because um, – right. Uh, because of, just because of the name recognition. So again, at that point, you know, it doesn't matter even if President Trump endorsed him. He was if he doesn't have the billboards, the name recognition, he's not going to win it. Because so sorry, Mo Brooks. Uh, you know, you could have had it. Uh, I wish you could have had it, but uh, it was just not meant to be. So we've talked a lot about immigration on this show and the damage that legal immigration does to American workers. I came across this article yesterday. It's talking about, of course, uh, this when this is recorded. This is going to be uh, March 22nd when I came across this article. Um, Subway, this is from theburn.com. Subway has closed multiple stores around Loudoun. That's Loudoun County, Virginia, close to where we're at. It writes, Subway sandwich shops continue to disappear in Loudoun as the nation's largest franchise restaurant brand shrinks across the country. In the past couple of years, Subway has closed stores in places like the South Riding Town Center, the Lansdowne Town Center, and the Cameron Chase Shopping Plaza in Ashburn, and the Potomac Run Plaza in Sterling. And the attrition appears to be continuing. The space where a Subway store is currently at the Leesburg Plaza on Market Street is simultaneously listed as available to lease. According to online sources, there were 27,103 Subway locations in the U.S. in 2015. As of 2022, there are 21,243, a loss of more than 5,800 stores, and this is, uh, this is just in seven years. Less than seven years. There are many possible reasons for the closures, and it talks about COVID. It talks about labor shortages, and it talks about uh, upset franchisees who have bristled under new stricter rules and contracts introduced in 2021. But what it doesn't talk about is the reason why COVID was such a factor. It doesn't talk about the reason we have labor shortages, and it doesn't talk about why the company might be trying to crack down on franchisees. Let's take the first one, COVID. So under President Trump, immigration, legal immigration was slashed in half. That's according to Business Insider. And that was before COVID even hit, right? That was before COVID even hit. When COVID hit, legal immigration was brought to a trickle because, of course, obviously you couldn't have people bringing in COVID in, into the country. So that Rightfully was a great so. opportunity to stop the legal immigration flow. You brought it down to basically zero at that point, right? Uh, very close, very close to zero. So the second reason, labor shortages. So obviously that creates labor shortages in the market, and it most certainly creates labor shortages in restaurants like Subway and fast food restaurants. This is from Business Insider. Right. Had uh, immigration levels maintained their pre-2016 trajectory, the U.S. would have roughly 2 million more people today. 
And it talks about how the number one, you know, the, the types of businesses that are affected by, um, by this are restaurants. It says restaurants like farming and processing jobs tend to offer low pay and poor conditions in many cases. And high turnover means there are almost always jobs available. And it talks about how employers are attracted, employers in these industries are attracted to immigrant labor. And when immigrant labor dries up, then, of course, hurts these industries and unemployment goes up. It doesn't seem to put two and two together and figure out, you know, maybe if these businesses change their business model, they wouldn't have to worry about going out of business. And this is the problem with not just Subway, but a lot of restaurants. This is why the restaurant industry was being so devastated in 2021, as well as the hotel industry. These businesses created a business model back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that relied on cheap foreign labor to do the work for them. They did not factor in that they would have to pay more in labor. So they fact they, they set their business model up to be able to pay people six, seven, eight dollars an, uh, an hour. And when that immigrant labor dries up, now they can't find anyone who's willing to work that cheaply. So now they don't have any other choice but to shut down. They can't just rearrange their business model and be like, okay, well, we'll pay Americans $15 an hour to do this job because they haven't factored in. They've, you know, they've got so much overhead in other restaurants. They've already spread themselves out so thin. They just can't afford to fill all these restaurants. So, of course, they have to start shutting down these local franchisees. And, other, and the third point is that the restaurant is cracking down the franchisees and setting up stricter rules. If you've ever been to a subway, at least I can't find a subway around here anymore because most of them are shut down. <laughs> but before COVID, subways were all over the place in D.C. And if you ever went to one, you would find that the service was extremely poor. The food was extremely terrible. And typically every single person there – in fact, I don't remember there ever being a situation where this wasn't the case. Every single person there was a foreigner. They relied on foreign cheap labor. And, of course, the service was terrible and the food was terrible. If you go to subways where it's all Americans, the service is much better, the food is much better. And typically, you know, interestingly enough, the prices are actually cheaper. So they're not only are they charging ridiculous prices for urban areas, they're not paying their employees what they should because they don't have to. They can just pay them the, you know, the bare minimum, and it's better than what these foreigners are getting in their own country where they're probably making 50 cents an hour. So this is the problem with restaurants and why you're having such difficulty, why this, these people are shutting down the restaurants, because ideally there shouldn't be this many subways to begin with. The only reason why there were so many subways is because they were relying on these cheap foreigners to do the labor for them. So this, this is one, one decent thing. If you want to try to find a silver lining from COVID, <laughs> it's that it stopped the flow of legal immigration. Absolutely. And of course, the, the border surge under Biden, this is going to reverse the, pro- this is going to reverse the good progress that's made under Trump. But it takes a while for those people to get into the labor force, which means that American workers have a few months of reprieve when they can demand higher wages. So now, guys, it has been far, far too long, but I am happy to announce that we have another guest here on The Right Take. We did a few interviews last year, and we promised you guys we would bring more interviews to this show, and we are doing so right here and right now. I am happy to introduce to you guys a friend of ours by the name of Hayden Ludwig. He is a senior investigative researcher at the Capitol Research Center. He's also a columnist at the Washington Free Beacon, a native of Orange County, California. That's where we just were a week ago. And he holds a master's of public policy from George Mason University. Hayden, welcome to The Right Take. Thanks, guys. Glad to be with you. So, of course, it's my understanding, uh, one of the connections we have here, uh, is that you actually worked together with Jacob back in 2017 at the CRC, uh, with Jacob doing so in his capacity through the National Journalism Center. Is that right, Jacob? Yes, that's correct. Seems like It seems like a lifetime ago. It's, it's hard to believe it's been five years. <laughs> 
you're telling me. <laughs> yeah, but yes, yeah, so I was in, I was interning at Capital Research Center through NJC. Um, had I'd had no idea where they were going to place me, and they found out I was a history major. So like, okay, well, instead of placing you to place at a newspaper, we'll send you over to a think tank. So that was a really good experience. Actually, got a, got a lot of uh, learned a lot of skills when it comes to research and writing. But uh, but Hayden, um, well, we'll just let you kind of explain what Capital Research Center does. Maybe give a little backstory on its history and all. Sure. So uh, Capital Research Center is America's investigative think tank. Um, we're unique in the whole realm of, of D.C. organizations in that we basically study the nonprofit left. Um, one of the things I like to tell folks about is when, when most people think about politics, they think about the two big political parties, right, and maybe all the PACs surrounding them. But what most people aren't aware of is the much, much larger, I mean billions of dollars larger a nonprofit network operating around these two parties that um, is especially large on the left and responsible for pushing policy in Washington, D.C. We look at the funders. We look at the activist side, um, the labor union side. My specialty is in environmentalism, um, the population control movement, the history of that, some of the abortion activism and a lot of the dark money funding these organizations. Agreed. Yeah, the, the the organizational left, you know, those think tanks and whatnot you talked about, it's so important to go after those those so-called nonprofits because that is where a lot of the left's institutional power and ability to organize comes from. It's comes, it comes from Soros not funding specific candidates or people like him, but from funding these NGOs, these, these, or these nonprofit organizations to fight for that agenda, that globalist leftist agenda here in the United States. Sure. And most people pay attention, well, like it's election year, right? And they'll start paying attention this summer to the coming campaigns uh, during campaign season. But these kinds of these astroturf activists, you could call them, mm-hmm. they're active 365 days out of the year, election season or not, always pushing. And that's the kind of stuff that we study. Exactly. It has been said, of course, the left understands fully that even after a victory, you never, ever take a break, whereas the right seems to think, oh, well, we won the 2016 election. We can sit back and relax for a little while, whereas the left, of course, is like, no, we need to be out there on the streets and organizing every single day. And that's one more reason why they <laughs> right. win all the we time. Go back to our lives. <laughs> exactly. Their lives are politics, and that's how they're able to keep doing what they're doing. So you want to tell us, Hayden, a little bit about this, um, uh, as the title of this article here says, wokeism in private schools going undercover. Tell us uh, what you uh, what you did here uh, with CRC for this uh, this report. Well, this was an interesting one. You know, like I said, this, this my specialty is in a number of different areas, not uh, education. But I was approached by a representative from a little group you might have heard of. It's called Undercover Mothers. Oh yeah, uh, with this fascinating story matter of fact you guys should consider having some of them on your show they're they're terrific folks these are for people who don't know undercover mothers is a group founded uh, in 2021 by a group of moms and dads it's entirely volunteer actually i like to point out they, this is a genuine grassroots organization unlike the you know hundreds that i normally look at on the left that are anything but grassroots this is an actual grassroots organization there are people in new york and california and ohio pretty much everywhere and what brought these guys together was they had kids in private schools where they thought their children were safe from the critical race theory the diversity, equity, and inclusion, the kind of stuff that the woke left is pushing on students in government-run schools. But they started discovering, actually, you're not any more safe than you are if you were enrolled in a public school. 
and they shared these stories with me um, and explained that they came together and realized, oh, my God, I, I had the same exact experience living in Ohio that you do in California. How can this be? And the answer is there is one national organization responsible for, for um, overseeing a network of regional accreditors. Um, and those accreditors oversee thousands of private schools. And it's through this networked left, this, these professional administrator activists, that wokeism is funneled down from the very top from a group that most people have never heard of called the National Association of Independent Schools all the way down to the everyday school and classroom. It's pretty extraordinary. One thing that I noticed in your article is it, it was talked about how the uh, how this organization and the material, the curriculum that they, that they push, it's almost like it promotes mental illness rather than try to address mental illness. It's like it's promoting mental illness and trying to get more kids to see themselves as mentally ill. Uh, could you address some of that, uh, what you came across? Right. Well, you know, it, if you think about the way the left operates, this is the the latest – well, let me back up. What we're seeing is the, the victory of a century or more of the cultural left, these cultural Marxists who figured out if we take over the institutions – we can ultimately influence and and have supremacy over the culture and, and voters and every, all the politics that flows from all of that. And this was an idea that you can even trace back intellectually to a guy named Antonio Gramsci, yep. who was an Italian socialist. But he studied Marx and he realized where Karl Marx was right was that all history is divided into these oppressors and these oppressed. And if we get the oppressed to rise up, we'll have, we'll have power forever. But where Karl Marx was wrong, he thought, is that this has nothing to do with capitalists and the proletariat, the workers, right? Instead, he realized it's all about cultural institutions. And so in the 1960s in America, the, the left started – um, entering into the universities, into even the military, into the government, into higher and um, education and K-12 education. And 60 years later, we are discovering the fruits of this long march through the institutions, as somebody's called it. Well, that has, has created a powerful, centralized kind of lefty Borg mind, if you will, right? That's pushing some of the wildest things, like you're talking about mental illness stuff, transgenderism, right? Critical race theory, the 1619 project, things that teach kids to be hyper racialized when they look at each other. And that all, all that stuff originated in, you know, sociology departments at universities. But because of organizations like NAIS, it gets spread to these private schools that you would think would be insulated from this stuff. But again, it's the way the institutional left thinks. And they encourage this – mental illness is a great way to put it. They encourage this sick way of looking at um, – the children's sick way of looking at themselves, of looking at their country and their, um, their schoolmates. Well, and one thing I notice is you point out that it's not just about one particular classification. Like they, they focus on race a lot. But they also focus on the spelling, like the spelling of women. Like instead of W O M E N, you write they they use W O M Y N to sound more inclusive, uh, rather than Latino and Latina, it's Latin X, and they come up with all like non-binary for say all these sexual identities. And it just reminded me of a training flyer that I saw from Home Depot that a um, friend of ours, a friend of the show, shared on Telegram, which we'll link to in the in the show notes. But uh, according to this training flyer, it said if you're confident that the police exist to protect you, you have white privilege. While growing up, 
if college was an expectation of you, not a dream, you have class privilege. And it goes on. If you have, if you expect to be all from work to celebrate your religious holidays, you have Christian privilege. And it goes on. For, it's, it's, you know, it's sexual minorities as well as Christian minorities. They try to create a divide between Americans, between citizens, based not only on class but on race and uh, you know other identifiers. So this is the thing. It's not just when it comes to left and right. It's not just a class issue. It's any form of identification that they're willing to tap into. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. What people, um, especially conservatives who are just waking up to this, need to understand is that the way the modern left operates is 100% Marxist. And, and all that that means is that they have a framework for viewing everything. And that framework is always, okay, look for the group that has the privilege or is the oppressor. Right. Mm -hmm. And then that means there's a group that doesn't have the privilege, the group that's being oppressed. And this is extremely arbitrary. Right. I mean, if you look at you, you named a half a dozen categories, they would say heterosexuals oppress homosexuals because they are dominant. They have the power there. They have the numbers. Whites oppress blacks because of the history of slavery and uh, race relations. They can they can squeeze it into any number of categories. So even the ridiculous assault on language like like they still pronounce it women as far as i can tell but they spell it intentionally to remove the m e n men from it so it's it's the it almost looks like it's welsh now w o m y n right or or this instead of having latino or latina it's now i th i think they pronounce it latinx i can't know i got to corner one of these lefties and ask them how they actually pronounce it i'm not sure they know how to do it but yeah it's this it's this impulse to divide all humans because the way the left thinks is always in terms of power. They're the ultimate materialists, right? They think um, everything has to do with wanting possessions, and they see all history as, as basically economics. And how do we accrue wealth? Well, we have to take it from you because you took it from somebody else. And this is totally contrary to the American experience of what well, we know. We don't steal wealth. We, we generate wealth, and the power is divided among the people. That's not at all how they see the world. And parents in these schools are discovering what that looks like when it's applied to you know children as young as five and six. Now, in your article, you mentioned Paul Rossi's investigative work uncovering ethical breaches between the staffers at some of these schools, or I should say people on the board of trustees, and also people who are on the board's of these uh, consulting firms that the private schools are bringing in to talk to them about DEI, about diversity, equity, and inclusion. We, we did – we actually covered this a little bit in one of our previous ep episodes last year when we talked about the, uh, the cancel culture, about critical race theory. Um, could you just kind of explain what Paul Rossi um, uncovered in that investigation? Well, um, Rossi and others have focused a lot on the what the NIAS provides, and we should probably – Spell that out. So the National Association of Independent Schools isn't an accreditor per se. Rather, it's a nonprofit that offers services to schools and organizations that that accredit schools. It's a little bit murky in that way. Um, and one of the services that they do is they put on a conference. And this is one of the things that Rossi's written extensively about. And he's part of Undercover Mothers. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't have a chance to speak to him directly, but I spoke to some of their um, people have quoted from his stuff, and I've read plenty of his work. Well, one of these conferences they put on annually is called the People of Color Conference. I've and they invite – yeah, and it's it's a, kind of what you'd expect, right? It's entirely focused on racializing curricula. And so the way these schools end up teaching this stuff in the classroom is that NIAS and its accreditors that it oversees – 
a mandate that you can only be a member and receive our services, which are which are really important to these schools, right? Because they provide statistics to help keep them competitive. Because remember, they're private schools charging tuition, not government-run schools that can rely on the state. And so schools need these resources, which means they have to fall in line with the curriculum that NIAS provides. I'll give you an example of one of these things that he's talked about. And, and these things are advanced at the People of Color Conference. Um, what, there's there's articles on, on NIAS's website about taking kids as young as three toddlers and um, instead of doing playtime, dividing them up by race into little groups so that they feel more, quote unquote, comfortable with themselves and become aware of their racial differences and they're given you know, different standards of teaching and kept apart. And the idea is to drive a wedge from them and make them the opposite of colorblind. They should be hypersensitized to racial differences that may not even exist. They may be totally arbitrary, by the way, um, from a young age growing up. And these conferences are there to drive this sort of teaching home to teachers well, one thing I've noticed about these the social revolutionaries in the Gramscian mindset is that they see parents as their number one enemy because they're moving younger and younger with these this type of indoctrination, this type of brainwashing. Because obviously they had sex ed like back in the nineties and stuff that was that a lot of parents were uncomfortable with. But this kind of sex ed typically started with eighth graders at the very youngest, maybe sixth grade. Now they want to start them off in kindergarten, preschool, talking about things that most parents would be uncomfortable with. And I find that they seem to see parents – it's like they want to rescue the kids from their own parents. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look at – I live in the state of Virginia, right? I think we all do, right? L- look at what happened in the 2021 election with uh, Youngkin versus Terry McAuliffe. The little, the little slip that uh, Terry McAuliffe made about, well, yeah, no, I think the state should absolutely be <laughs> uh, kids' lives without any input from the, from the uh, parents. That's not a slip. That's exactly the way these people think. Because they're statists, right? Exactly. And, and it's further proof that, of course, if the Republicans and the right in general are going to have any hope of winning, it will be on cultural grounds. It will not be on, you know, taxes or welfare reform or anything like that. And even someone, as we here on the right take previously had criticized Glenn Youngkin, someone as relatively milquetoast as he could turn it around in those final three weeks and become a hardcore culture warrior and win such an upset over a Democrat powerhouse, a fundraising machine like Terry McAuliffe, then anything is possible in a state like Virginia that Biden won by 10 points in 2020. Well, I think, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. I think that's, I think that's totally right. When I spoke to the, these undercover mothers, you know, one of the questions I wanted to, to ask them was, what's your political stripe? <laughs> and has this changed your, your political views? And you'd know, be surprised, maybe a third plus of them were um, liberals or progressives in their own words. Some of them were former liberals and progressives who changed in the last four or five years because of this sort of thing. You know, They're sick of their kids learning about white fragility and, and, and how to be an anti-racist and that sort of thing. And one of the women who lives in New York City and went to these – all of, this is a woman who told me she knows the former head of Planned Parenthood has had lunch with – you know, people two degrees removed from the Obamas. <laughs> and she swears up and down that if conservatives, if Republicans target this issue, they could they could flip states they've never flipped before. That's how up in arms parents are about this. And it shows that it's really not a partisan issue. It's it's an issue that of the left finally taking off its mask and revealing how ugly it really is. Well, they've gone they've gone way too far, and I think uh, the the activists, the core activists, they're unwilling to recognize that because they've now got a taste of power, and they're not willing to scale that back. 
uh, you included a quote by Gary Saul Morrison that I thought was really relevant when it comes to trying to open people's eyes to this. He wrote, the whole point of Leninism – he's an ex-socialist, you write. He said the whole point of Leninism in Lenin Think is that only a few people must understand what is going on. And I think this for so long, this was the case with schools. I mean they were in, they were starting to introduce stuff like this years ago, but they weren't as open about it and they weren't targeting ages as young as like three and four-year-olds. So I think the, the key here is trying to – if you inform the masses of what's going on, even liberal parents – because I mean we live in a very liberal – one of the most liberal areas in the country. And the people I interact with on a day-to-day basis, I assume most of them are Democrats – but these aren't people – like if you talk to them about their values and about what they believe in, you can tell these are not people that support woke culture. These are not people who support cancel culture. These are not people who would support critical race theory. The problem is they've been convinced that it's not being taught. So that's – to me, that's uh, that's our biggest task is to try to convince people that this stuff is actually being taught. And uh, and like the undercover mom is is a is an excellent uh, excellent way of doing this, of waking people up about it. Um, another thing I noticed about in the article that I think is really key to getting people to recognize critical race theory is pointing out the terms in critical race theory. Things like empathy, mindfulness, curiosity, global citizen, cultural competency. Those are just some of the ones that you pointed out in the article. And it reminded me of last of the of the Summer Olympics last year when Simone Biles dropped out of the out of her competition and ended up dropping the U.S. down from what would have been a gold medal down to silver medal uh, a silver medal behind Russia. Um, she was under a lot of a lot of pressure to do that. Obviously, tw- the Twitterverse was celebrating her pulling out because of mental illness issues. But one of the things that she said when she was explaining was that it was she needed to focus more on mindfulness, and that was why she wanted she didn't want to compete. She didn't feel like she was a hundred percent, so she wanted to focus on mindfulness. When she said that, I thought, wait, wait a minute, um, that sounds familiar. And I went and looked it up, and I realized that this is part and parcel of the whole critical race theory, the whole kit and caboodle of this new ideology they're trying to force on people. Um, what are some ways that we could try to uh, – are there any other terms other than the ones that I mentioned that you know of that are, that's pushed in this curriculum and other ways that we could try to get parents to recognize when their kids are being taught this stuff? Well, gee, somebody needs to write a dictionary on lefty terms because even though they change every week. Well, the, I think the concept of diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI, it's often called, uh, bears some some going over – um, this is this is the probably the best name for the broad agenda that we're seeing, not only in schools, but also in corporate boardrooms and the workplace and other parts of American life. Um, and the main one I want to focus on is equity, right? That sounds like a really wonderful thing. Who, who isn't for equity? Well, you shouldn't actually be for equity. Equity and equality which is they're not the same thing at all. Equality is an old American idea, but equity is a is a Marxist idea. It's a socialist idea. It's the difference between how you start, right, or, or how we say in the Declaration of Independence, we recognize that all men are created equal under God. That's not a statement of equity because it recognizes differences, but it recognizes some fundamental thing that if you're a human being, you are entitled to certain God-given rights, you have a certain – Rich or poor, you know, smart or stupid, whatever differences there may be between individuals, they are still both human beings. But equity is a different concept that says we have to right the wrongs of the past by giving to some and taking away from others. 
right? So you'll see this image um, even of a tall person, you know, looking over the fence, right? And, and a short little person next to him who can't see over it. So they take a box and they lift up that the short person. So they're standing at the same height. That sounds really positive. Who doesn't want to do that? But what it actually entails is never just adding a box to help somebody stand up a little bit higher, right? It always entails taking something away from somebody else. If you understand the framework of this cultural Marxist stuff, this oppressor versus oppressed, that everything's about power. And if you have it, that means you stole it from me. If you start thinking in that way, which understanding how the left thinks, then you can see how their calls for equity are really a blanket um, power grab to give the government the ability to take away anything from you, to give it to somebody else to write a grievance, even if that grievance doesn't exist. So they're teaching children to think in this way, um, and it starts with focusing in on, well, hypersexualizing them and hyperracializing the way that they see these things. Um, a lot of the mothers that I spoke with saw this sort of thing too. They also wanted to say that it's not only critical race theory that people need to be aware of. Critical theory in general is is much broader than that, and it can be applied to economics to politics to parenthood to a thousand different kinds of things and when you hear that term critical theory like empathy and these other things that's code for a much larger left-wing radical worldview that is that has a freight train of, of baggage behind it so so we shouldn't be so quick to adopt the left's language but we should be quick to understand what the hell these people are talking about when they use words that that <laughs> it's like they're taking a word that we would use every day and they're they're gutting it and wearing its skin because they mean something entirely different than mm-hmm. you and I do when we say diversity and inclusion. Oh yeah, the misappropriation of language is one of their key tactics, you know, to take you know basic everyday words and weaponize them. I mean, again, the very idea of racist, you know, just that they throw around as a term for everybody they disagree with, used to be something a lot more different. You know, the word Nazi used to mean it used to be something much more powerful and rightfully so. But now they use it so much, everybody just, you know, says, oh, oh yeah, Nazi. Yeah, sure, Nazi. And again, when they use seemingly innocuous language like, you know, diversity, tolerance, what have you, it is a great, clever mask for something a lot more insidious. Again, just like with how, say, gay marriage was all about oh, we just want equal rights. We just want to get married like the rest of you. And now here we are almost 10 years later, and it's led to, you know, transgenderism and closing in further and further on the normalization of pedophilia. Well, I'll give you a, a concrete difference between equity and equality, right? Equality means you you have an equal opportunity at being hired. If you're qualified as somebody else, a company can't discriminate against you and say, you're one race that we don't prefer, so we're not going to hire you. The, but equity says, no, we have to hire you because you're of a certain race, right? It's hiring quotas. We don't we don't have enough black women. We need to hire this person even if she's not as qualified as this other person over there. You also see it in the universities. When, when major universities are discriminating against Asian Americans for their heritage because they have too many of them in their, in their, um, in, in, enrolled, that's an example of equity. Or, or even if you look at the census that we just took in the last two years, the Census Bureau has all of these really arbitrary, vague categories of people like Middle Eastern, North African, two people groups that are very distinct. But they're lumped together. Asian can incorporate people from India, China, the Philippines. 
peoples who have very little to do with each other and no, no historical connections can be lumped in arbitrarily. This is examples of equity because if we lump these people together, we can create a political block from them. And then we can create all sorts of activist groups that cater just to them. Asian American Pacific Islanders. That's mm-hmm. the huge one that's coming up on the West Coast right now. So we got to pay attention to these things and learn the lefty lingo. Well, just as an example, another another uh, unfortunate example of equity, we've got uh, – this is from Como News, Tacoma, Washington. A Washington state school board adopted a revised student policy, a discipline policy last week telling school officials to take a student's race into account when determining their punishment. So we see uh, school boards are already adopting policies where white students will automatically get punished more. Asian students will automatically get punished more because they are perceived to have more privilege than other students. And you mentioned uh, not adopting the left's language. This is why the the so-called "Don't Say Gay" bill that just came out of Florida is so is written so well because it doesn't it doesn't talk about critical race theory. It instead focuses on the outcome of critical race theory. So, for instance, it bans other aspects of critical race theory or critical theory in general. And this is why I think the left has has flipped out so much about this bill is because if it was a bill just saying critical race theory shall not be taught in schools, they could say, well, it's not taught in schools, so this isn't a threat. But when you actually say no, a school board cannot dish out a harsher punishment or against someone because of their race or they can't take race into account when they're disciplining students, then you you take away their ability to implement critical theory. That's brilliant. See, that's an example of cultural conservatives properly identifying their enemy and going for the jugular. You know, instead of just responding to these bombs that the left throws at us, it's going straight for the heart of it. That's that's really brilliant. One thing I'm noticing is a lot of parents who aren't really tuned in to this stuff, they haven't really been paying attention, not just parents in general, but just conservatives, they, uh, they, don't see the, they don't see the need to use government as a force for good in getting rid of this stuff. Typically, the response whenever you explain this to people, first of all, half the people you tell this stuff to, they don't believe you. They, they just think this is so far-fetched. This is so out in left field. They would never bring this stuff to America. This is Even Democrats wouldn't support this stuff, and they're right. But because they don't recognize the influence that these people have had in the institutions, they just don't believe you. The other half, when they do believe you, it's like, oh, wow, the world is caving in around us. I've just got to get my kids and I'm going to go put them in a private school. I'm going to take them out of the school system and go put them in a private school. But as you point out in this series, it's the private schools who are being the most aggressive about implementing this stuff. So I think this is something that we need to try to drive home with conservatives is there's nowhere for you to hide and there's nowhere you can go where you're going to be able to shelter your kids. You say, well, I'll put them in private schools. Well, private schools are more aggressive about this stuff. You say, okay, well, I won't send them to school. I'll just homeschool them. Well, if you, you can do that if you want, and it may work for a few years, but eventually if we lose political power, what they're going to do is they're going to pass laws saying, okay, you can homeschool your kids, but you have to teach them DEI. They'll just start outsourcing DEI to the parents, and they'll say, if you're not teaching your kids DEI to our standards, then we're going to stop your ability to homeschool your kids, and we're going to force you to send your kids to school. So I was just wondering if you could address the the uh, kind of this lazy, fair attitude among conservatives of just uh, like I'm just going to withdraw in my own little bubble. I'm not going to try to use government to force my will on other people. Well, for over a century, you know, people in this country have been used to going to government-run schools, and our parents and grandparents and great grandparents' generation grew up taking that for granted. Um, and it's little wonder they had patriotic educations. They didn't have schools that they felt were were not only not teaching them much that's useful, right, but also weren't undermining their basic view of the world and the family. And that's a new thing. And I, I think what's going on right now is 
the left, we've said this before, but the left um, has played its hand a little too far. They've, they've taken the mask off and people are seeing for what it is. But I think even more broadly than that, the country is, is having this reformation that's going on. People are waking up and seeing that, well, wait a minute, why do we have government-run schools? And what are they there for? And why are they teaching my, my children, you know, an anti-patriotic education? Um, I, I forget the exact number, but the number of homeschooling kids in the last few years is something like doubled or tripled. It's incredible the growth that's going on. Actually, my wife and I are talking about homeschooling uh, our son. He's, he's a baby right now, but when he grows up, we have no interest in putting him through government schools. I see Christians all the time talking about um, how, how can we outsource our education, which is a a writ given to us in the Old and New Testaments from the Creator Himself, how can we outsource that to government? Even if it's a good education that's patriotic and firm, still we have a duty um, to pay attention and be there and introduce our children to the world. Well, I think generations before us took it for granted that they didn't have to, and they got lazy. And I think it's the unfortunate case, it's just human nature, that when government offers us something – we, we, the first generation may say, okay, well, I'll use that as a supplement, but after a few generations, we get used to it being there, and we come to rely on it, and it's made us, it's made us weak. It's made us um, – well, we have to be sentinels, right? We have to be, pay attention to this stuff. One of the things I, I noticed from talking all to these undercover mothers was across the board, even the, the mothers and fathers who were paying attention and active in their, their kids' schools – they weren't paying attention enough to the homework. They weren't paying enough attention to the to the conversations in the classrooms. It was only when they started hearing about this stuff or caught a whiff of it, like, I'm sorry, what? What did your teacher teach you today? And they started investigating, and they saw how deep the corruption was. Well, that's years and years of parents who we've thought that they were diligent, realizing that I have very little clue what's going on. This is one of the advantages that homeschooling, I think, has, right? I mean – not that everybody's going to end up doing that, but I think it's important for the country to pull their kids out of government schools. And maybe one day we can use the government to reform it. I'm skeptical of that myself. But I think if we if we if we gut this institution and we start off from scratch and we look at what is the role for churches to play in education, what's the role of families to play in education? I think we can go a long way towards winning that culture war. Um, I mean, just like we're seeing across the board, right? conservatives are realizing we can't take back all these institutions instead we just leave them and we start our own and we and we we rebuild it from scratch uh, that kind of revival i'm very excited about because i do think we're going to win that war not just the politics not just the elections i really do think we're going to change the culture that way well i guess i guess my only uh, the point i was i was trying to make is that that's that's all well and good but when the government comes and tells your church that here's the standards that you have to teach your kids or we're going to take your license away to teach or we're going to shut you down mm-hmm. comes to parents and say you have to teach your kids this like we are, we already have math standards like you can't homeschool and not teach your kids math you have to teach them math you know, oh i could, understand they could say and well, you know what i'd say to that people have to get ready for civil disobedience Learn the lessons that the lefties of the 1960s taught us. Yes, yes. Learn to say no. Learn to – I'm not saying go out and break a bunch of laws that may come to that. But learn to say, no, I, I simply refuse to comply with this order. If you study the the, the lives of people who lived in, in totalitarian governments, this is always how those governments come to an end. 
people simply stop complying. And the government is powerful, but the government is not powerful enough to send an inspector to every American's house and double check and make sure his curriculum is coming through just the way that they ordered it. Uh, this is just going to be the way it, it is. I am very skeptical that we're going to win back control of Washington, change the Department of Ed, <laughs> and start this top-down, trickle-down. I don't think it's going to happen that way. That, that's all well and good to win the White House back and Congress back. But if, if conservatives are serious about this, they need to recognize that education only works when it's at the local and the county level, and that means controlling the states. And if the states are being ordered by the federal government – to enact these kinds of critical race DEI curricula, right, then the states are going to have to learn how to ignore that and say, no, we refuse to do that and follow Florida's example. I, I see I see that creating what, – what, what would I say? I see that creating um, the kind of chaos that's good mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, the American Revolution was born from. I think if you spit in their eye a little bit, I think that's that's healthy and people can push a lot more than they are right now. And uh, I, I think they'd be surprised at how far they can go. I agree completely. I think civil disobedience absolutely is the best tool we have at our disposal. And arguably, it's the only thing we have left because, yeah, we don't want to be like Antifa or BLM going around and burning businesses down and killing people in the streets over it. But we definitely want to defy mask mandates, defy everything that they try to throw down on us and say, you know, we are free people. And we will stand up and resist you. Real resistance, not resisting Trump because they didn't like him. And that's what I argued in my speech in California, that we should continue to have these protests and mass civil disobedience and defying unjust laws. You know, I think I think one of the founding fathers said, I can't remember which one, said, you know, when a law becomes unjust, it is man's duty to defy it. And they absolutely, above all else, like you said, they don't have the power to come to every single one of our houses. And they know that. And they deep down inside, even with the deep state and everything, the whole apparatus on their side, they are scared of us if we disobey and act up just enough. Yes, the, the left is absolutely terrified that we're all going to discover that it is a paper tiger and that they're ordering out – they're giving all these orders and commands to us in the expectation that we'll follow them. But if enough people just say, nope, not going to do that, like with the mask mandates, they blanch. What can they do? What strength do they really have? They don't have as much as you'd think or as much as they'd like, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Hayden. This was definitely a very informative interview. And thank you so much for all the incredible work that you do and you and your colleagues at CRC. We look forward to potentially speaking to some of the people you mentioned, you know, undercover mothers. And of course, we are open to having you back on the show as well, if you'd so like. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you, guys. It's been a privilege. Of course. Thank Thank you for being here. And of course, that is all the time we have left for this special episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to follow our website for all of our latest content, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of podcast platforms and social media sites where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And if you are feeling ever so generous, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys. 